You're listening to Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jamin. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Screenwriters Need to Hear This. Michael Jamin here. I have another wonderful guest today. And this guest, uh, we're going to talk about drama writing because he's, he's, he works primarily in drama. And his story is fascinating, how, uh, how he broke in. And um, we're going to get to it. Please welcome Mr. Alex Berger. And he's worked on... Alex, let me give you some, let me introduce people to your some of your amazing credits here, uh, and and you can fill in. I'm just going to go over some yeah. of the highlights. Uh, well, I know you did you did Kville. You create you co-created Gel, uh, Glenn Martin DDS, which is the show my partner yeah. ran. Yeah. Uh, Covert Affairs, The Assets, Franklin and Bash, The Mentalist, Blind Spot, and currently you are a writer on Quantum Leap. So you got a lot of drama. Burger, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to it's good to be here. I've been enjoying listening to it. Oh man, it's a, I'm so happy you're doing this. I want to let's talk about let's start from the beginning, uh, because you what's I think it was so interesting about your background. So many people say like, how do I get a showrunner attached to sell my show? And you kind of sold your show, your own your show, Glenn Martin DDS. You were very, pretty new to the scene, and then you got a show you got a show on the air without much experience. So how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I was, I'd have been out here for probably uh, five or six years, and I'd had a couple of staff jobs. I'd had, you know, a, a job doing a sort of comedy variety show before that that was a very sort of small potatoes thing. But mm -hmm. that came about because um, Steve Cohen, Scoop Cohen, who I know you've talked about before, was a friend of mine and um, had mentioned this idea that Michael Eisner had had for a long time about a family who traveled the country in an RV. And they had writers attached for a long time. Um, Tim and Eric of Tim and Eric Show were attached to write the thing. I didn't and, know any of this. Yeah, and they they um they got like a sixty episode order on their other show, and so they had to back out. And so Steve oh. said, "Come in and pitch a take." So I came in and I uh, pitched a take. And Michael Eisner, who was uh, had just left, sort of basically running Hollywood, he was running Disney, had just started a company, and he had just had um, like larynx surgery, so he couldn't talk. So every time I pitched something, he had to write his response on a computer, which was uh, fun, but a little. <laughs> Little challenging. But what uh, was the what was the idea that they what how much did he like what was when you pitched your take, what did they give you? He, he had said family lives in an RV, basically That's it. travels the country and animation. And he had more than that. I mean, it's been almost 20 years, so I forgot. But he definitely had a real idea. He'd had this idea for like 30 or 40 years that he, he, he you know that he'd wanted to do mm -hmm. over, over the years at Disney and he wasn't able to do it. So he had a pretty formed idea of what he wanted the show to be. But was it dentist? Do no. you you came up uh, with that thing about through development. I mean, that was sort of like you know, Steve and I kind of Steve became sort of a the, you know, and I had sort of like you know, it was almost like an incubator. Like we right. instead of a typical situation in which I would come in and pitch a show, he kind of brainstormed with me and created the ideas with me, and we kind of toyed with a couple of different versions of it and came up with the idea of him being why is he on the road and what's he driving in and came up with right. the idea of a dentist that was in this mobile dentistry unit and sort of built some of the characters around that and it kind of kept getting added to and, <laughs> um, and because all that stuff became comedy gold like because you know dent throughout the seasons we were like what kind of idiot has a dental car like who does he think what kind of clients how does that work and it all became fodder for yeah jokes for the show just for uh, a circus <laughs> at one point and it was like doing dental work on animals if i remember correctly but yeah um, it was it was definitely like i didn't think i'd seen that before so that was kind of one of the, the things that was fun to explore and and you, so you came up with all the well at least the the, the dynamics for the characters because what I remember you know we watched the the I don't know if it was a pilot or a presentation that we saw but um, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the characters you, you invented were funny. You had, a, you know, the dumb kid. He had a, the, the daughter and she had an assistant, which was, we hadn't seen that before, you know. Uh, yeah, was, I mean, it was definitely like, even more than other experiences I've had in development, very much a team effort. And then um, when, you know, we, we had sort of come up with the script and then I think you had Eric Fogel on the show before and Eric came on and was also sort of added his vision, both in terms of look and feel and tone and story. I mean, was digging in with us. And then Michael, on his own, had, you know, paid for an eight-minute pilot presentation. So they made an eight-minute stop motion, basically the first act of the show. Uh-huh. And he took it downtown, took it everywhere. And uh, we ended up setting it up at Nick at Night with this 20-episode order. And I think that's when you guys sort of went to the picture, right? Right. So you started, I'm curious, I, it's funny how I never even asked you about this. So you, at that point, you had to meet showrunners. For a show you created, which we're going to talk about in a second, did you meet a lot of showrunners? I met none of the showrunners. I met you guys after you'd been hired. Oh, really? I wonder how many they so met. They did the the the, the Tornante like system was they wanted to sort of make that decision in house, and so they met with showrunners and had decided like they were very much sort of like immediately captivated by you guys and were really excited about you. And I don't think it was a pretty quick decision. And then they had me come to meet you guys. Now the thing is, I imagine. You were very easy to work with. You, you, and to your great credit, I always felt like you just turned over the keys, and it was like, okay, here you go. And, and it was never like an ego thing with you. But was it was it difficult though for you? I mean, I, at the, I can give you the answer that I was thinking at the time, and I can give you the answer that I have in, in retrospect. Yeah. Like I think at the time, I felt like I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, in, in, let me give you the answer in retrospect first, which is in retrospect, I know that I was inexperienced to know, especially about comedy writing a lot yeah. and certainly about running a show. Right. I think at the time I was very happy for you guys to come in and run it and exactly as you said, take the keys. I think that I felt um, intimidated because it was a room full uh, of really seasoned comedy writers. I knew I was one of the least experienced writers on the show and yet my name was on the show. So it was a kind yeah. of a weird dynamic. It's not like a typical situation in which a more experienced writer comes in but they've never run a show so they pair them with a showrunner and then they're really like a triumvirate or something. Right. I definitely felt like experience wise and sort of comedy chops wise, I was with folks who'd broken two, two, three, four hundred episodes of, yeah. of really, like cool sitcoms that I really admired. So I felt like I wanted to contribute from a character and comedy perspective as much as I could, but I also felt like I was learning on the fly right. that I had my name on. So it was, it was definitely tricky to sort of figure that out. But you guys were great about like never feeling like you were stepping on toes and, and like you always would consult with me, especially at the beginning, but it was, it was very clear that it was your show, but it was yeah. also that you wanted me to sort of be on board with what we were doing. Yeah. And, and I mean, it was a fun room. I mean, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't speak for you. But I thought it was a fun room. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great. I mean, it was like, I, uh, I'd never been in a sitcom room before. I mean, I've right. been in a couple of drama rooms as an assistant and a writer and like, those rooms are more buttoned up, you know, and a little more like, let's come in at 10 and start talking about the story at 10, 15. And, you know, there's, there's definitely bits and, and sort of like, you know, di- um, digressions, but a comedy room has a, has a certain uh, energy that you can't replicate. And, and it was really fun to be in that room. Um, and it's, I've been in rooms that are a little bit like that since, but never anything that was like, I laughed quite so much. It just had it. I was going to ask you about that. So, right, because, you know, I don't, I haven't worked in any drama. We've done dark comedy, but never drama. And so I'm curious, you've done a lot of drama. So are the rooms, are, the, are they really what you're saying? Are they, are they, are they, are they, are they buttoned up? Are they serious? Because you're still, it's still, it's still a creative no, job. It's fun. I would say 
this is based on a very small sample size of my two years in Glen Martin and then just listening to comedy writers talk. Uh-huh. I think comedy writers find the genius through procrastination. Uh-huh. Like, I think that it takes the um, tangent sometimes to get you to the gold. Uh, and I know you, you guys, especially like more than other comedy writers I've known, were very focused on story structure. Yeah. You had like, from, I know from your time with Greg Daniels and, and Siebert had bought a book at the mall about, um, about <laughs> that it was like very important to you that the, that the story felt like it had, uh, you know, sort of load bearing walls, but yeah. it did feel like, you know, more free flowing and there were room bits and like there was a whole sitcom inside that room of, you know, yeah. crazy characters, both people in the room and people look, we were looking out the window at. So yeah, that's really different than other shows I've been on. Other shows I've been on, it's a little more like, all right, let's get to work. And especially these days with, like room hours have gotten shorter. And so like mm-hmm. time gotten less and I've been in Zoom rooms for the last couple of years. So that's just, it's even less of a room. Oh. So you haven't even gotten, you haven't gotten, your last rooms haven't been in person either. You haven't yeah, been, I've been in three Zoom rooms since the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I, I was gonna, it's funny you mentioned, because <clears throat> you know, comedy rooms have room bits and we, our offices were, were on Beverly Hills and the big glamorous street in Beverly Hills. And we, we would look out the window and you're right, we would create stories. When we weren't making stories on, for the TV, we were making stories for the regular characters that we would saw outside our windows. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I truly, like, I know you had Brian and Steve and a couple other people from the show on. I, I have not laughed that hard in a room. Like, yeah. um, it was a blast. And I also think it, there's value to it creatively. Like, it's not wasted time. I think it's, it's just a different way of getting to the process. I remember hearing once of a, I can't remember which one. It was a Simpsons writer who, who would be on draft. He had two weeks to write his draft, and he would pace around the Fox lot for twelve days and then write the draft in the last two days. And someone asked him, "Why don't you just write the draft for the first two days and then be done?" And he said, "Because I need those twelve days of pacing to to get me to the last two days." And I think that's, I think comedy writers are more prone to that kind of way of thinking. I think. You see, I don't remember. See, I don't remember that way because I'm always about like, I always get nervous when that story's not broken. I always want to crack the whip. See, is more like, eh, that's that's uh. Uh, but yeah, to me, I was always like, I when you were in the room, it was more like, let's stay on story. And we see yeah. it was a little more. And then when you guys were both out of the room, it was even more free flowing. Mean, which is not to say that all the co EPs weren't like trying to keep us on story, but you know, it's like, it's a, it was a silly show mm-hmm. about silly characters and like kind of absurd, like every premise of every episode had a, a massive degree of absurdity to it. And yeah. so you couldn't be too serious in a room like that, or you wouldn't yeah. you know, be ready to make that kind of show. I mean, that's at least that was my take on it. That was a, we, I, I would describe that as a writer's show. It was always about what made us laugh mm. and uh, not yeah. not the 15 year old kids who shouldn't be watching sure. <laughs> or the yeah. 10 year old kids. It was, what, it was, uh, it was um, either Brian or Steve who said it was a show with a demographic of nobody. Which <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it was, was a show demographic of the 15 people in that room for sure. We all really enjoyed yeah. it. Watch them; they're they're all really funny. It's they just, are uh, funny. You know, the, on, the wrong it was on the wrong network, probably. Oh, for sure. I, Steve, and I were horsing around, uh, procrastinating on some work we were doing, and for some reason we stumbled on it. Maybe it was some guy's YouTube channel where he was mm-hmm. talking about Glenn Martin, and this guy nailed it. It was like he was in the room. Mm-hmm. I don't know how he knew every. It seemed like. He he knew where we messed up. He knew where we got it right. <laughs> like man, I was just I was, amazed that I, I saw that video and I was like, I can't believe somebody watched the show. I thought that literally, I could not imagine that this guy was like that deep into the show. Oh no, I get a lot of comments on social media like, "Oh my god, you ruined my childhood." Really? <laughs> like you gave me nightmares. <laughs> my wife, my wife's cousin is is like twenty five or twenty six, and he's dating a girl. And on the second date, 
he asked her what your favorite shows are. And the second show she said was Glenn Martin DDS. And when he said, oh, my wife's cousin wrote that show, she was like instantly smitten with him. She gave him so much credit. Oh, that's so funny. I mean, it was a wild show, man. Oh, too bad. That was a shame. We were going to spin it off too. We all- Oh yeah, you got, you got all... the Stone spinoff right behind oh, yeah. you. Oh yeah, there you go. Drake Stone, yeah. All my dolls. Yeah. Um, yeah, as soon as they went under, they go, here, here, take some dolls. You, you must have some dolls, right? They give you some I have dolls. a Glenn Martin puppet and an Alex Berger puppet. And my kids oh. constantly want to play with them and I won't let them. Who, who, yeah, who were you in the show? I don't remember. What kind I, of I think I was like a Greek god carrying somebody at some point in some fantasy sequence. And they would reuse the puppets. That was what was so funny. So I think I was one thing and then they reused me as another thing. And did you ever get out to uh, Toronto to see the... Uh... No, did you? Did you go up there? Oh, yeah, we went once, and Fogel and I yeah. had a very romantic dinner together on top of the Toronto <laughs> Space Needle or whatever they call that. Place. I saw them shooting the pilot presentation, which they shot in New York. It was incredibly cool, but just like... I, I've always found set to be tedious in general, but like yeah. I can't imagine how tedious it must be to do stop motion. Do you go... Oh, it was, it was, I think they wanted to, you know, poke their eyes out. But did you go... Do you go on set a lot for, for dramas? <laughs> Yeah. Is it just your episode or what? It depends on the show. Like I did this show called Blind Spot for five years and basically we would have a writer on set for every episode and we would, we would try to make it your episode. But oftentimes it was, you know, the writer who wrote the episode had a baby and is on maternity leave or uh. they can't go to New York at this time. Or if they went to New York then they wouldn't be back in LA for the breaking of their next episode. So we tried to shuffle it around a little bit. And it's trickier when it's out of, out of town because you've got to make you know, people have life that they've got to plan around, but you're going for three and a half weeks to New York. Uh, were most of them, are most of your shows shot out of town? Um, it's been mixed. At Quantum Leap, which is the show I'm on now, is shot here on the Universal lot. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Blind Spot was New York. Covert Affairs, which I went to a lot of episodes for, was in Toronto, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then I've had a couple, Franklin and Bash and The Mentalist were LA, and, you know, it's been sort of a mix. How many day shoots were mo are most of your shows? Uh, it depends on the budget of the show. Like Blind Spot started as nine and then was eight and a half and some tandem days and by the end was eight. They, you know, they, they keep the right. budget every year. Quantum Leap, I think, is eight. Interesting. And then what are you as a writer on set? You know, for me, for for comedy, when I'm on set, it's like I want to make sure they're playing the comedy right, hitting yeah. the jokes. But what are you looking for that the director isn't isn't covering? It's, well, first of all, it's a lot of times if you have a great director, it's a team effort. So the director is obviously in charge of the set, but if you have a director who's collaborative, they're asking you, do you feel like that works? Or which take do you feel like mm -hmm. was better? Does blocking work for you? And it's, your main job is just to keep track, make sure that the you're, you're the protector of the script and a protector of the story. And it's not like, excuse me, you didn't say the word the there, although there right. are like, you know, a Sorkin set, like they will keep you word perfect. But it's yeah. more like, you know, actually, I know you I know you want to change that line because it doesn't feel comfortable in your mouth, but it's really important that you say this. It's going to set something up that we're doing in three episodes. Yeah. Or, hey, just so you know, when you're saying this to this character, you're actually lying and you're you're going to be revealed to be, a, you know, like it's a lot of making sure that everybody knows, you know, the yeah. episode you're up to, the episodes we're leading to. And then, yeah, it's, there's still like, you know, a lot of shows I've worked on have a, a fair amount of comedy. So you're still making sure jokes land and there's... Mm. You know, this doesn't feel comfortable in my mouth. Do you mind if I say it like this? Or if you work with an actor who wants right. to have a little bit and wants to assert a line, sometimes I, I need to be the one to say, okay, well, then that means that this person needs to say this line after to keep the joke going. Mm -hmm. Right, right. It's interesting. And especially when scenes are shot out of order. It's it's easy for actors to not, to lose track of where they yeah. are in the, in the story. So that the is- What I really like is, is prep because I've worked on a lot of big shows, big action shows. Uh -huh. And you walk into, you you fly to New York with your script in hand and you're so excited. And then the first thing that the line producer tells you every single time is, we're $400,000 over budget. Like before you even say hello. Right. So the fun part to me is like the puzzle of how do you protect the story 
with the constraints that we can't shoot this in nine days. I've walked into episodes that were supposed to be seven day shoots and the board came out and it was 10 days. And so you've got to figure out, okay, we can move this back into the house and we can take this oh, care wow. of it. We can do this here. And actually the shootout that happens after the bank robbery, maybe that happens off screen and you know, stuff like that. All right, so are you doing a lot of rewriting on set then? It's usually in prep. It's in right. prep. Okay, in prep. By the time you're in set, in, in a drama, you, you're pretty close to set to go unless something changes or, you know, an actor, like nowadays, if an actor gets COVID, then all of a sudden you're taking that actor out of the scene and rewriting the scenes and the, you know, why are they in the scene and all that kind of thing. Aye, aye, aye. And then are the, is your are there showrunners ever on these shows ever on set or are they always mm -hmm. in proxies? Is yeah, it depends. Are? It depends on the show. So like typically on the shows that I've been on the showrunner will, you know, the showrunner was there for the pilot. They're usually going to go for 102 just to, it's been four months and they want to reestablish a tone and kind of be a leader. And then they'll try to pop in and out, you know, a bunch during the year so that it's not like they're just coming when there's a problem. And then when the show's in LA, the showrunner will usually try to pop by, you know, after set, after, you know, before, especially if you're before the Zoom room thing, like the room would, the, the writer's room would wrap at seven, the, the, the production's still going. So they usually come for the last couple of scenes, something like that. How many writers are there usually on these, on these, uh, you know, hour long shows? I mean, it's, I'm curious to hear what your answer is for comedy too, because it's, it's really shrinking. Like in the beginning, I mean, Glenn Martin was what, like 10, 12, something like that, including if you're, yeah, if you're maybe the partners is two. Um, and then I've been, you know, it's gotten down to 10 and then eight. And then I think Quantum Leap were at about 10, which is a big staff, but like right. I, the Netflix show I just worked on was, was six. Um, the, the, the show, the assets that I did, which was a limited series was five. And this is, you know, a lot of big issues of the strike is like these rooms are getting too small. Right. What are the room, comedy rooms like now? Because I know there's been like, you know, it's like sometimes it's like 25 people in a room. Well, on animation, but I think those days are kind of over. Or like big, or like big network sitcoms, aren't there like? I don't think they're that big. I don't that, think there are big network sitcoms anymore. True. But I, I don't think they're, I mean, it was never. What was the, know, the Tacoma room? Oh, that's, I, it's probably eight or so. And that's, but that's just, that's a small, you know, uh, cable show. But they're all small. I think they're all like that. Right. Like even yeah. the network comedies, unless you're Abbott, like they're they're all like 13 or eight or, you know. Yeah. I think even Just Shoot Me back in, you know, this was in the day. Yeah. I want to say maybe 10 or 12 times. Oh, really? That's it? Yeah. Yeah. Roseanne. Roseanne was famously big for had a big staff. They had, but that was Roseanne. It was a giant show. And The Simpsons, I know. Like there's, there's these shows that have the two. I mean, I, the drama rooms there's a lot a bunch of writers who like like having a big staff and then they like to split the room in two and break two episodes at the same time like a lot of showrunners actually want a small staff and like hate having too many voices yeah i like a, i like a big room i like eight to ten people because you know you're always in a drama room especially like you've always got one writer on set two writers on draft you know sometimes mm -hmm. another on set. so like there, there's three or four people gone every single day so you gotta your your room thins out real fast, and, and I think you need like at least five people to break a story. Oh yeah. Now the thing is, you're a funny guy. You have a good sense of humor. You started in comedy, but do you miss at all comedy, or do you feel I'm a fish in water with drama? Yeah, I I was in over my head in in, in comedy. Like I, I um, I'd rather be the guy who can do a little bit of comedy on a drama staff than the guy in the in a comedy room who's mostly focused on story. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt like I you know obviously like you know I wrote pilot and i felt like i had a voice on that show but like it was clear to me that this was not like the type of show that i was going to be thriving at you know i, I really enjoyed it but it was like mm. just I pure was, comedy wasn't my thing like i love writing on a funny one hour like franklin and bash which was a legal right. show was essentially a comedy that had the stakes of a drama but the tone of a comedy and i right. love because i like being able to 
you know, go to the serious scene to have the emotional heft to not have to have a joke at the end of every scene. No. Uh, and then, you know, I've written some pilots and stuff that, you know, have a fair amount of comedy, but I always want to, the, the and I've written half hour dramas. It's just, I want the, the, the pressure of like three jokes a page and sort of like, you know, uh, beating a joke and beating a joke and beating a joke. It just wasn't my pace. Well, I got to say that one of the, I think it was probably the last script you wrote was you and Pava teamed up to write a Christmas episode. Oh, yeah. And you guys crushed it. I remember coming back, you guys turned it in. Whatever you guys did together, you're like, you guys, you're going to do this together. Probably yeah. because Pablo wanted to write a musical. We're like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, Pablo, I'm not writing a musical. Uh, and he probably did. But you guys turned in a great draft. And I was like, you know, if that show had gone, I'd be like, I remember thinking, well, these guys are going to be stuck in a room together for a long time because that's- Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That great. was a lot of fun. And it's funny, like, I want to show my kids the show. They're really young. And it's there's like not a lot of episodes that are appropriate for little kids. <laughs> that, one is, that one's pretty tame. That one's pretty tame. Um, uh, there's a- we did like a rom-com parody, like a sort of made, uh, you know, the wedding planner parody. And then we did like a, yeah. uh, what was it? I forget the other ones. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. Oh yeah. We did some nutty stuff. So now the dramas, when you, when you go off, I'm sorry, when you go off to write your own pilots, when you're developing your own, mm. is there a, is there a unifying theme tone that you like to pitch? Or? Yeah. I would say two things. One is like fun. Like, I don't want to write something super dark. I don't want to write, I like watching shows like that. Like I watch, you know, Last of Us and The Leftovers and a lot of shows that are real bleak and I really enjoy them. Right. But when I'm living in the world for, you know, 12 hours a day for eight years, I want it to be fun. I want to I want to have a, a certain amount of like lightness to it and, and sort of levity to it, which is right. not, it has to be a comedy. It can still be a drama. There just needs to be something fun about it. And even when I'm writing on a show like Quantum Leap, we had episodes that are really serious, but the ones that I do, I try to make them, you know, I did like an airplane hijacking episode, but I tried to make it fun and sort of like an act, you know, sort of like a 80s action movie. Um, and then the other thing I would say is sort of optimism. Like I try to write something that makes you think that the world is going to be a better place. I've written a lot of political shows and politics is pretty dark these days. Yeah. And one, my take is sort of, but if we do this, we can all get through it. Um, right none of those have gotten on the air so maybe that's that says something about what people feel about optimism these days well it's also a numbers game but yeah. you know but but how do you feel like let's say you let's say you were given the keys to run your show got on the air somewhere eight episodes on the air how do you feel are you how do you feel about that um, um yeah let's do it i'm ready or like oh my god what did i get in my, my you know both i mean both. like you know, I did the um, I did the Writers Guild showrunner training program a couple of years ago, which is phenomenal. I'm sure. I what was I, that like? Tell me all about that. It was great, but let me let me. So yeah. essentially, it's a six week, uh, you know, every Saturday, all day, every Saturday, college course on how to run a show, and they, you know, it's run by um, Jeff Melvoin, who's a really seasoned showrunner, and Carol Kirshner, who's been working in the business forever, and then they bring in John Wells, who's usually a big part of the program, and they bring in like really heavy hitter showrunners all the way down to people who were in the program last year. And then got a show on the air and they're like, you know, Bill and Ted, when they come back at the time machine and Bill and Ted's and they're like, you're in for a crazy journey. Right. Um, and so it's really cool to hear from all of those people. And they focus, you know, one day is on writing, one day is on post, one day on production. And what I learned from that was having been on staffs for something like 250 episodes of, of TV, I've learned basically all the things you can do in terms of book learning to run a show. Mm -hmm. But the last 20%, you can't learn until you're right. there. Sort of like right. if you read 100 books about swimming, you kind of know how to swim. But if you dropped out of a helicopter right. in the ocean, you're going to have to figure it out and you're going to be drowning while you're doing it. 
Um, and literally, I don't know if this was your experience when you guys had it, but like every other showrunner I've talked to says, nothing fully prepares you for it. Yeah. So I, you know, I have a couple shows in development right now, and if you told me that they were to, to go, I think the first feeling would be utter terror. Mm -hmm. And like, okay, let's do it. Let's go. Let's, you know, this is the time to do it. And I've been like, I've run room, I've run a lot of writers' rooms and you know stuff like that, but I've never actually had the keys to the castle. So interesting. So right. So you okay? So you've run the room. What you you've been breaking stories. You're in charge of that now. I mean, mm -hmm. it's that time. So, and and in terms of the so, tell me about the short run is part of You apply. You say like, how do you get in? You, you apply. Say, you have to be recommended by somebody, and <clears throat> I applied, and they want someone. They're trying to find people who are like the next shows up. And right. so a lot of people in the program have a pilot that's already been shot and they're, it's already ordered a series, but they don't know how to run a show. And you have a lot of like people who've worked in features or worked in, 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 you know, writing novels who are transitioning to television. So they, all the production stuff to them is totally new. Right. And then you have people like me who sort of came up as, you know, like staff writer, story editor, co-producer, just worked their way up the ranks who've been around for a while, who just haven't taken that next step. Um, who, you know, want to know more about what it's like to run a show. I loved it. First of all, I, I, it was like being in college again. Like it was just absorbing yeah. material and taking notes at a frantic pace and, you know, reading books that they recommended. But it was just so interesting to hear. It's like this, your podcast is so great because you get to hear people's yeah. stories. But these are people who are like specifically targeted at the demographic of you're a co-EP and you're about to run a show. Here's what you need to know. And so you don't pay for this, right? Or you do? Guild pay, the Guild pays for it and the studios pay for it. It's the a studio. phenomenal program, yeah. And then it's so interesting. And then, you, all right, so then, uh, so how big how big of a cohort, how big of a group is it? 30. And it's a bummer because these days it's been on Zoom and so you don't really get oh. to The year I did, I did it in 20, 2017 or 2018. And so I got to know those folks and they were sort of, yeah, again, my cohort. And, you know, three quarters of them are running shows and, you know, like, and everybody else's co-EPs or, you know, sort of EPs running rooms. It's a, it's a very, like, fun dynamic to have a group what? What, what are they teaching you in? What are they? I'm so curious as to what they teach you. Like I bet there's stuff I don't know, and we've done three shows. What are yeah. they teaching you about post that you don't that you were surprised? Um, I mean, the overwhelming the, the 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 first thing they tell you when you walk in the door is quality scripts on time. You, the bug that they yes. gave me the showrunner program quality scripts on time, and yeah. that was basically the theme of it was, you know, being efficient, mm -hmm. being secure, and knowing when to cut your losses and say move on, and knowing when to say this isn't good enough. And so for, for posts, it's, you know, like, are you the type of person who wants to be in post for 10 hours a day? That's fine. But then you need to have somebody who's going to be overrunning the room. Or right. do you want the writer who produced the episode to do the first and the second cut, and then you do the last cut? And they're you know, they bring in editors, and they talk, editors tell you about what they want to hear. Because like, there's, there's a lot of things that I, I've been in post a lot before I was in that room. And then editors were telling me things that I was doing that annoyed the crap out of them. And I was like, oh, like, little like thing. Like what? Uh, snapping. Like, when, when you say, like, cut there. Oh, um, or, that annoys that annoys them because yeah. it's like a dog thing. Yeah, exactly. And like you know, uh, they a lot of editors. Some editors want line notes. Some editors want you to say this scene doesn't feel funny enough. I'm not getting the comedy, and then they'll say, okay, let me take another swing at it. And you need to feel like, is this the type of editor that wants to do it on their own, or am I the type of showrunner that wants to do that? Um, but like broadly speaking, it's essentially a leadership training program. The nuts and bolts stuff was all stuff that I had seen up close being a, 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 you know, lieutenant on a show. Yeah. There were a lot of little tips that I picked up here and there. And, you know, when I get a show, I will go back to my notebook and frantically look through it. But, but it's mostly about how do you lead? How do you manage? How do you fire people? Mm -hmm. um, how, do you, how do you delegate? How do you tell people that they're not doing a good enough job and give them a second chance? 
It's interesting. You know, I know you work with, they bring a lot of directors in, you know, how to you know stuff like that. Uh, what was the last thing you said? I, I how to interview a director. Like they oh, how to interview a director. Paris, Paris Barclay, who's a big director, came in and talked yeah. to you. Here's some questions you should ask when you're interviewing. Like, here's a great one that they said. Yeah. They said, when you're interviewing a director, ask, if you're the showrunner and you're interviewing somebody coming in to do an episode, episode of your show, ask the director, do you cook? And if so, are you a person who uses a recipe or do you like to improvise? And there's no right answer to that, right? Uh -huh. But like, if you cook and you're the person who is going to measure out the exact number of grams of flour and the exact number of grams of sugar, that's kind of how you're going to approach directing. You're going to come in with a shot list. You're going to be uh -huh. on time. You're going to, you know, make sure that you move this, the set along. And if you're the person who likes to kind of throw a little salt and throw a little sugar, you might be a little more improvisational on set. You might be a little more, you know, and, and there's little things like that. That, yeah. you know, that are like kind of how to how to dig in on this with those people. Now, now I'm learning. What else can you share with me that might that might be <laughs> I'll get my notebook and tell you. Hey, it's Michael Jammin. If you like my videos and you want me to email them to you for free, join my watch list. Every Friday, I send out my top three videos. These are for writers, actors, creative types. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm not going to spam you, and it's absolutely free. Just go to michaeljammin.com slash watch list. I remember when we were running Glenn Martin, which is the first show we ran, a lot of this, and you probably weren't, weren't even aware of this, a lot of it was me, like if I was at the board or whatever, it was me like, okay, I want to make sure I'm not losing the room. I mm -hmm. want to make sure everyone, no one's losing focus. And I think part of that was uh, make a decision, even if it's a bad one, mm -hmm. because you can lose the room if you can't pull the trigger. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, people, I, it's so guys, frustrating. You guys did a good job with that. And then I think that so, yeah, decisiveness, I think, is actually one of the most important qualities in a showrunner, but also willingness to admit you were wrong. Like, yeah. you made a decision and, and moved on, and then a day later you realize you were wrong, yeah. you have to open it and say, I made the wrong decision. You know, and one of the things I've learned running, uh, that I really try to do when I'm running a room is, like, if there's an idea floating around that I hate, but it's getting energy and it's getting excitement, I try not to step on it until the, it either burns out on its own mm -hmm. or reached a critical mass and i'm like look i think this is not going to work but let me let's talk it out because there's nothing worse as uh, having come up on staff and this is like one of the most valuable things when you've been a staff writer and a story editor as opposed to getting your own show as the first thing that happens to you is you know how demoralizing it is when like everybody's super excited about something mm -hmm. now it's not going to work it's so demoralizing yes a lot of times you think it's not going to work you just sit there back and listen for 20 minutes and you're like oh actually you know what there is a version of this that'll work if i just add this one thing so that's it's an, it's an organism, right? And you're leading an organism, and it's very hard. And, and you know, you guys did a great, and you guys are a team, which is even harder because you've got to read each other's minds about. Well, you, you know, if this works, and you you bring a good point. Like I remember one time, so in Glen Martin, I would I would go to I would direct the actors on Wednesdays or whatever, and mm -hmm. see would be running the room. And I remember coming back to the at the end of a long day of directing, come back to the room, and you guys had made a lot of progress on the script. And you know, everyone's excited, everyone's excited about this idea, and you guys yeah. pitched it to me. And I, and I wasn't getting it. I, I didn't get it. And I was like, I, and, I, and I didn't want to shit on it because I could tell everyone was so excited about it. And so I just kept on asking questions just to explain it to me so that I would get on board. Uh, That's a and, really hard part is like, and I, because I've never been the actual showrunner, I've never been the one who's had to be like, you know, I'm sorry, we're vetoing this. A lot of times what I would do because I was a number two was, if I hated something, if I left the room and then I came back and I hated something, I'd be like, look, this is not, I'm not totally on board with this idea, but let's give it its day in court and let's, you know, let's pitch it to the showrunner. 
And I would try when I would pitch it to the showrunner to be to not give away which side I was on or to say, like, look, here's one side of the argument, here's the other side of the argument. But when it's ultimately up to you, it is hard because, you know, like, I always analogize it to like in Family Feud when like the first four people give their answer and then that last person has to give the final answer and they want to go against the rest of the family. It's a it's a hard thing to do if you're wrong. Yeah, and that's, you know, I guess I don't know. How, how What was that experience like for you? Did you feel like it was like you had to balance what was your favorite idea versus losing another 10 people's? morale it wasn't even about my favorite idea it was more like just i just want to make sure like if siebert's on board then i trust then i then i trust him but it's also like uh i i can't i wish i could remember what the episode was it just like it just didn't make any no, I sense remember, to me. i remember that a couple times it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a, every, every show i've ever been on has had that every show um, I've ever, the showrunners left the room the room gets excited about something yeah comes back in and it's not what they want it's just part of showrunning yeah the value of having you know uh of staff that's been together for a while is the longer the staff has been together, the more you can say, oh, Siebert and Michael are going to hate this. Like we shouldn't even do this path. <laughs> Versus early on, you're like, you're you're going down a million paths. You don't know. But once you get to know the showrunner, you kind of get to know what they like and what they don't like. Yeah. There was another idea that we had in that show. I don't remember what it was. It was one, we were all on board, but Siebert wasn't on board. <laughs> it was something crazy. Oh, it was the, uh, I think it was the radio episode. And there was something about like, Radio. wires or no wires and there were there was, they weren't recording the the music the whole time they weren't who wasn't recording music like the, glenn went to you gotta cut this out of the podcast <laughs> no one's gonna care but it was like there were a lot of room bits that i think that's the problem with room bits yeah is like they take on a life of their own and then they're an inside joke and if the showrunner comes in and there's a room bit in the script yeah it's an inside joke it just doesn't work because you weren't there for the beginning of it which is a good sign that it's not a good story because the audience wasn't there for it either. But I think it was Glenn becomes a radio producer named Stacey Rappaport. Yes. <laughs> because Mike was also named Stacey Rappaport. Yes. And, um, and I don't know, he works for Stacey Rappaport. And anyway, the whole time it was like, the you guys were doing the Brady Bunch Johnny Bravo episode basically as, as a... Uh, yeah. I remember they weren't actually the thing was like were they actually reporting by the way i will say again this is you can cut this out early but it's not like relevant at all but like i grew up watching the brady bunch for whatever reason even though i'm 10 years younger than you guys and that was like number one reference that you guys talked about so i did feel like at least i got those references oh it's so funny i remember that i remember because i think i was the one who pitched the name stacy rapaport like I remember it because I had a friend named Stacey Rappaport. Oh, really? That's so funny. Yeah. I, it was just a man's name that he, Glenn, it was the joke was that Glenn was going to choose yeah. a, a new identity for himself and he chooses a woman's name. <laughs> what? Have you gone back and just watched like full episodes of the show? No. And everyone, people want to know, but I, people ask me that a lot. Like, I don't touch, I should, I love that show, but I don't touch anything that I've written. I just don't. It's it's over. And I don't know why, why? but you do. I, was, I mean, you know, I'm curious, just like not even about Glenn Martin, like, that is an interesting thing about writers is whether they want to go back. I go back and watch stuff and I hate it because I'm like, uh, oh, I'm but because Glenn Martin was not really mine, it was such an organism of, of the room. That I, uh, I was, I laugh when I go back and watch it. Except so, for the one I wrote, which I don't like. <laughs> oh my God. We had some fun. We had some fun in that show, but okay. So when you take, I have so many questions for you. When you were young, when you were a kid, did you want to be a writer? I know. It, I, I no idea it was a profession. I, Love television. I was the youngest kid. I was, you know, raised by the Cosby Show and the Brady Bunch and mm -hmm. yeah, um, and uh, you know, my idea of a family was basically what those families were. Probably should go back and rethink the Cosby one. And um, and then I even in college I interned at Saturday Night Live and Late Night with Conan O'Brien back when he was oh, on wow. TV, 
which were like fantasy camp. They were especially the SNL one was like the truly a dream come true. And it still didn't occur to me that it was a profession that I could go do. Uh-huh. I was go to law school, and then a buddy of mine. We were in uh, Jerry Subs and Pizza, which is an East Coast person you probably remember. And we were sitting there talking about what we we're going to do. And he's like, I'm, "I said I'm going to go to LA and be a writer." And I said, "How do you how do you do that?" And he said, "Someone writes this stuff. Why couldn't it be us?" And it, it it just gave me this epiphany of like, "Oh yeah, everybody who's out there as a writer at some point wasn't a writer and just got out there and learned how to do it." And so we all went out together and we kind of got our start. Did your friend become a writer too? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we all ended up creating a show together. So the the earliest thing that we did was we we were on the high school debate team together and we walked into um, National Lampoon, which at the time was doing like low budget cable programming. And the, the head creative guy there just made fun of my resume the entire time and made fun of debate. And then by the end of it said, there's a show here. And so yeah. we came pitched him a show called Master Debaters that was right. a sort of co-debating society. And we ended up getting to make it. It was like our film school, right? Like I, I knew nothing about how to make a TV show. And I was, that one, I was throwing the keys to the castle. I was casting it writing it producing it i was in it hosting it you know um wow. with every crisis but it was so low stakes because the budgets were tiny and like they were in syndicated cable stations and college campuses like no one was watching so i got to kind of learn by doing mm-hmm. um, and i loved it it was great interesting and then all right so then you became a writer and then and then you just kept on writing i guess i mean it's not it's not an easy path but you've made a good path you've made a really pretty good name for yourself over the years yeah i mean i thank you i like <laughs> I, I sort of it was a winding path like I, when i came out i thought for a minute i might want to be a development executive because i read a book by this guy brandon tartikoff who used to run nbc called the last great <laughs> and it was like you know basically made it out to be you're sitting in your room and the, and the smartest people in the world come and tell you what tv show ideas they have and then you pick the, the eight of them and pick the order and and america you know um cheers and right. that's and so i worked in development for a minute and that was not what it was like at all and I was miserable and I was jealous of all the writers who were coming in. So I said, that's the job I want. And so I What quit. was it? I didn't know you worked at Vogue for- I was, an assistant. I was an assistant in development at NBC. And you what, was, what was it like then? It's very business-like, very busy, um, and not as creative as I wanted to be. I, I actually really enjoyed the conversations I had with the executives when it wasn't time to do my job and it was just time to talk about TV. But the actual job I was doing, I was terrible at. I mean, it was a lot of like, keeping track of who was calling and I'm an absent-minded yeah, person. Yeah, but that was, you're an assistant. I mean, do you, I mean, surely you But were... it's, it's a long time before you're Brandon Tartikoff, right? Like almost right. everybody else under Brandon Tartikoff has a lot of, you know, sort of business responsibilities to do. And it just wasn't, I like, I'm not, that's not how my brain works. Like my brain needs more free time. I think if I worked at a place that was smaller, that was incubating like three or four shows, I probably would have enjoyed it more, but we had 50 comedies and 50 dramas in development. And I was trying to, of all of them and who was calling and you know the letterhead changing and all this stuff and it was just like i was terrible i was not good at it i mean my boss even said to me one day he said you're a very smart guy why are you not very good at this and um we had a, a nice conversation about that um but the main thing was like the writers that came in that i was you know can i get you a coffee can i get you a tea can i get you a coke i was so jealous of them right and I wasn't in the, I, the door would close to the pitch and i just wanted to be in there listening to the and so I realized I should follow that. And so I, I didn't last that long. I lasted like eight months and I quit. I had, at the time had been, I think, had a couple of writing jobs, like smaller writing jobs lined up. Like that show Master Debaters had been optioned to VH1. So we were writing a pilot for VH1 and a couple of their small writing jobs. So I went to go do those and then got back sort of the, back in the beginning of the line as an assistant. I was a, a writer's assistant on a show and then I was an assistant to a showrunner and then I was staff. Right. So, so it's a brave move for you to... Uh... 
to leave that behind and, and it was definitely i mean i had some stuff lined up but it was definitely a risk but i just knew it wasn't the right i was in the wrong place right but you know it's interesting like it was an incredible uh, learning experience like i knew how development worked from the inside and i still think i know more about the like what's actually going on at the network than a lot of my peers because i was on the other side mm. and then the folks i met who were the other assistants to the other executives are now all executive vice presidents of networks or presidents of networks or my what i met my agent because he was an assistant to an agent who used to call and then he signed me while he was still a coordinator um you know, one of the people on that hall is now was became the president of Fox. Another one who I've dealt with a lot became the president of NBC. Like, I, I, I met a ton of great folks through that who have become friends and allies over the years and have sold shows to. But, okay, so it's probably changed a lot since you were an assistant. That was probably 20-something years ago. Yeah, <laughs> 19 years ago. But, um, so what is, it, what is it like then that we don't understand? I think the main thing that I didn't understand, and this is for sure changed and certainly in cable and streaming, is just the volume. They are not spending as much time thinking about your script as you are by definition. Right. But in development, there are literally 40 to 50 scripts, at least back then, on right. both on comedy and drama. And so the, my boss, who was in charge of both, has 100 skips, scripts to keep track of. So he was very smart and could make a judgment very quickly about a script, but he would read it once sometimes read it again, and then he was making a, a judgment about whether it was a show. So right. as a writer, now I know they're reading fast, they're reading it at 3.30 in the morning, or they're reading it on the plane. I've got to grab attention fast. I've got to hook you in. I cannot, like, mm -hmm. the, oh, the great twist. Wait till the great twist. It's on page 55. Or, and when I'm pitching, it's the same thing. Like, my boss said to me, I hear 300 pitches a year. I typically hear about five ideas I haven't heard before. The other right. 95 I've heard before. Yes. It's about take it's about the writer it's about their passion and so when i go and pitch an idea the substance of the idea is the second most important thing and my connection to it and why it has to be me is the first most important thing yeah and that's the hard part i feel mm -hmm. that's the hard part because usually you, know, you think of an idea you know you can't really yeah I, I, that's i don't know you're you're 100 right they always wanted to say they want to know why are you the only one in the world who can write this idea truthfully you know it's like a lot of times you're not like a lot you know a lot of times like well this is the characters we created it's a funny situation but there's probably a lot of people who could write this idea yeah i think that the what i have seen and i've never done this but like i, I know folks who have is like like I, I knew a writer once who his his sort of why me paragraph was um i just run a show for a bunch of years i came off of running that show and i didn't know what i wanted to do next and i had an identity crisis and so it got to the idea of identity crises and here's a spy show an action spy show, but at the center of it is a character going through an identity crisis. So it's not okay. Grew up and my dad was, you know, the spy, and therefore okay. It's sometimes it's emotional, or sometimes it's I had this interaction with a guy on the subway and I couldn't stop thinking about it, and you know, it led me to this show. And sometimes, by the way, you retrofit it. Sometimes you right. already come up with the show, and then you've got to come up with that first paragraph that's retrofitted, and if it. It's sometimes it's like often it feels organic, even though it has come up with that for us. That's so interesting because I'm glad you said that. To me, um, it almost sounds like uh, it, it gives me some solace knowing that because a lot of times we'll say, okay, this is why we're the only ones, and it's this is from Siebert's idea, uh, home life or my home life, and then it doesn't sell. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't know what to do now, but you're mm -hmm. actually broadening it out into a thematically, it's more personal to you. It's not necessarily uh, a dynamic, it's more like, Here's how I here's how I think about it. Like I think that like, and I, I could be wrong. And by the way, it's different in a comedy because you got to make them laugh in a comedy, right? Mm -hmm. in a comedy. 
pitch. And like, I know certain comedy executives don't laugh, but like, for yeah. the most part, if you're funny in the room, they're thinking, okay, I want to be in business with these guys. But in drama, it's, are there twists and turns? Am I hooked on this? Is this going to fit with something that we have on the air? Do we have something similar? Mm -hmm. um, but I always think like, what they're going to remember when they've heard six, they hear six to right. eight is a day, right? And then at the end of the week, they go tell their bosses about the ones that they bought. So what they're going to remember is, oh my God, you'll never believe the story I, this guy told about like the time that he was held hostage on the subway, or you'll never believe it, or a cool twist or a cool character. They're not ever going to remember like the third beat of the pilot or like when you pitch episode ideas, like here's- So interesting. Episodes. You know, I think that's, you need that stuff, like to be in there, but what they're going to remember, it's like when you walk into a house, you know, when you're like looking for a house, you remember like, oh, I was dazzled by the kitchen and like the master bedroom had the coolest bathroom. And yeah, yeah, it had five bedrooms and five baths, which is what we need. But like, right. I felt like this when I walked in. It's like, how do they feel? That's another, I mean, sorry to ramble, but like, no, for, drama, actually, mm -hmm. for drama, I think in a pitch, if you can make the executives feel how the show is going to make them feel, that's a, that's a successful pitch to me. The comedy is a little different, I think, but. Interesting. I feel like I'm learning a lot from you, actually. Because, uh, I mean, honestly, we'll sell shows and we're not sell shows. We're learning all that time uh, from you guys for 40 episodes on the murder. But a lot of this is like, you know, we like I said, we'll sell a show or we won't sell a show. And I won't know why. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure why we this one sold and this one, the other one didn't sell. I can, you know, but that's I don't why, know. You know, I really don't like Zoom pitches because you can't, I love, that's actually my favorite part. I think it comes from, I was, like I said, I was on the debate team in high school and college. And I loved, mm -hmm. I loved trying to persuade <laughs> someone who was not necessarily on my side at the beginning that I'm right. And, yeah. And I viewed every pitch as sort of like a miniature debate. I'm debating against the person who says, don't buy this. And I, I love the feeling of like, oh, I've got them hooked. And they're now, they are going to buy the show as long as it continues to, to go on this pace. Or, and I hate the feeling of like, I think they've checked out. And I actually right. like, when I've memorized a pitch, I'm, when I think they've checked out, I'm talking, but my internal monologue is, well, I guess we didn't sell it to Fox. All right, well, if we didn't sell it to Fox, we can do it at ABC. Because I'm checking, I'm, I'm sort of like, I've moved on. How, are you, how much off book are you? Do you have notes or not? I've developed this method that I got from this guy, Martin Garrett, who I've worked for for eight or nine years, first on Blindspot and now on Quantum Leap. It's, it's different, but I love it, which is, it's different on Zoom. But, but when we go back to in-person pitches, what he does is he brings in his laptop and he puts it on the table in front of him and it acts as a teleprompter. And so he's looking up at you, making eye contact and occasionally looking down. And then he's got a remote that flips page to page and the script is there word for word. So if you're like, oh shit, I'm about to get to the part that I always mess up. Then you just look down and read for a minute. And they know, they know you've written this. It's not like no one is under the illusion that you've walked in and riffed for 20 minutes. Well, he, does he do this in person or on Zoom? Both. On Zoom, it's so easy because you can right. have your screen, right. but on per in person, I, got, I thought, oh, they're going to think it's off-putting. But because I, I was practiced, I got to the point where 70% of it was eye contact and, that, and this, the laptop was there as a security blanket. And what, what program is he using that that's a teleprompter? It's Word. Oh, so you're just scrolling. Oh, you're just clicking. I, there's, this, there's this Bluetooth remote that he uses that I was now like in my drawer and it's just, you click and it's what it's, it's the next page. You have a Bluetooth remote that works on your, on your laptop. I didn't even know it's such a yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning so much from you, Burger. Oh, uh, you know what? I lost. Oh, here it is. Yeah. So you, it's like a little USB that plugs into the back of your computer, and then you're just like you click, 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 and it's you look, you look like you're giving a TED talk. Like it's it's oh, five percent easy. And I actually think in a comedy pitch, it might come off as like 
too dorky. But for a drama, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to deliver a pitch. And like, you know, I wrote it. And the, the reason I find it useful is a lot of times when you're developing with like the pod and the studio, and then also the non-writing showrunner, you know, they've so many changes, like Sunday night, you're getting notes for a Monday morning pitch and stuff's mm -hmm. changed. So I, I, like, if I get to the section that just changed, I might look down a little bit more. Interesting. So are you, I was going to say, are you going in mostly with pods these days? For, you know, for, uh, for people who don't know, there's producers on the overall deals at studios, but is that how you, is that how it works in, think, in drama as well? I don't think we're going to show on the air anymore without a, without an entourage. So I, when I was on Blindspot, I was produced by Greg Berlanti, and I did a couple pieces of development with him, and then also mm -hmm. with Mark who ran Blindspot. I just think, you know, there's the business side of it, which is that these networks want to be in business with their 800-pound gorillas, mm -hmm. and they're not. So if you walk in with one of them, even if it's my vision 100%, and it's like my personal story, the fact that this brand is behind it really helps. Um, and then I also just, I love... I actually enjoy the process of like crafting the idea with smart people. Like I don't want to work with a pod who's annoying and, and gives dumb notes or a studio who does that. But every pod I've ever worked with, if I'm stuck on an idea, I'll say, Hey, can we hop on the phone for half an hour and like work out the story problem? You guys have each other, right? right. So you guys can like get in a room and hash out a story problem. But I, I need to talk. Like I cannot think through an interesting. Answer. So you're all so oh. producers and, and we'll, we'll work it out. Oh, so you'll really use them as a resource. It's not, it's so interesting. I mean, this guy, Martin Guerra, who runs Blindspot Quantum Leap, I've, I've developed with him a bunch of times and he's a writer. Yeah, it's different. Stuff is acting as a pod, but I can call him and we have such a shorthand. We've broken 150 episodes. Yeah, but that's different because he's a writer. He's not, I mean, he's a writer, he's right. writer, producer, but he's but really so is, a writer. So is Greg Berlanti. Like, you know, I, I like working with folks who are on the creative right. things. And I've worked with producers who weren't writers, but could be because they're creative. Right. Like, the, the worst part of bad development is when someone gives you a note and they don't realize, oh, that's, that's going to unravel. They think it's two lines, but it actually unravels right. the whole thing. Whereas right. when you work with, with people who've made a lot of TV, they're like, look, I know that this blows everything up to do this one little thing, but here's why I think it's better. Or, right. hey, they gave a huge note. Here's the easy fix. It's only two lines, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting. You're absolutely right. There's a huge difference between, I think, between working with a producer-producer and a writer-producer, because the writers, they, they just know what what's going to unravel everything. I, I don't know. It, yeah, that's producer a Producers place. are good for like, oh, you know what? You know who'd be great for this is this actress, and they make the call, and they're good Yeah. Yeah, I find that like you find they're all everybody's in this business because they're good at something. Nobody who's come to this business and is just cashing a check. Well, probably not true. But the people that I try to find work with are people who are in this business because they're smart. And even if they're not, you know, uh, like totally up on, you know, exactly what I wanted to do, fix the script. They have something that they're they're really good at that I want to use. So it's even if it's, right. you know, I, there's one person at this company who's mostly the production person have a, a really good idea about like, hey, if we shot this in Buffalo, we could do this. You know, Right, interesting. Wow, I think I, I've learned a lot from you. Let's let before we you want conclude. To go write drama with me, let's go. What's write, that? Let's 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 all go write drama. Let's. Yeah, I think I'm going to get into the drama business with you. I think you're going to be my my pod. <laughs> um, what about uh, what advice do you have for young for young writers? You must have something wise to say. Yeah, I mean, I probably don't have anything wise to say, but I'm happy. Or, to or how are they breaking? How do you find? How are they breaking in on uh, the business? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. The answer was so different 10 years ago mm -hmm. uh, to four years ago. It changed rapidly. And it's very different now because of the writer's strike. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're talking about like, what should I be doing right now if I want to break in? I was just talking to a writer today and my advice to her was just use this time to write. Yeah. 
it's not a good time to try to get a producer attached or a showrunner attached or an agent. It's a good time to just be writing and really writing like diligently. Mm-hmm. And then this is over. And in general, my advice is get a job in the industry, even if it's as an assistant, like if you can't get a job as an assistant in a room, get a job as an assistant in post or get a job as a PA on set, just get into the room. Mm-hmm. And then just keep building a network and talking to everybody you know. And when your cousin comes and says, you know, I, I used my college roommate, I think as a writer, I don't know what he, like take, take them up on all of those opportunities because you never know what's going to result in something. The first three jobs I got were from general meetings that I didn't want to take because, you know, actually two of them were from people my mom had met. Oh, and wow. Parties in Washington, D.C., but they were, you know, another assistant who was leaving their job and, and happened to open up. Um, so just, and then the last thing I would say is, I think the thing that people don't do as much of it that they should do is like engage in the continuing education piece of this. So your listeners to your podcast are obviously trying to learn mm-hmm. how to write. And that's important. There's a lot of other good podcasts out there. There's Deadline Hollywood, which everybody should be reading every single day. Mm-hmm. There's you know, business podcasts like The Town and The Business and Fresh Air that people should be listening to to understand the macro pieces of the business. So often you get people who come out here and they have no idea how the business works. Right. But there's film school available for free. There's now you seven episodes of your show yeah. and you know, other shows like it. And there's a lot of episodes about how the business works that I think people need to sort of absorb. Alex Berger. I, this is, I, you you hit it out of the park, dude. I oh, think this is, I, I think this is this my, uh, this like I, I wrote it with Pava. Like you wrote it with Pava. You did this. <laughs> screw Pava. No, you, I, I found, I don't know. Uh, I hope, I hope people go back and even listen to this again and again, because I think you said so many smart things in this no, that were you. even kind of new to me. And, uh, I don't know. I, I, thank you for sharing all your knowledge. I think it was you're, you're, doing doing great, you're doing a great service. Like what I love about your podcast is that you you ask the question that I want everybody to ask on these podcasts, which is like, tell me your story, tell me how you got started, and then you interrogate what the yeah. lessons are along the way. Like so many of these podcasts, it's like tell me about your latest project, and essentially they just become promotion mm-hmm. vehicles. But I, you dig in and you really like every, the ninety writers that you've had on the show. Every one of their stories is different, but there's a lesson in every single one of them. And that's what I, you know, to just add on to the thing that I was talking about young writers is like, when you hear people's stories, if you walk away with one kernel of wisdom of like, oh, they got fired off the show and they were miserable, but here's what they did wrong. And now I can take that forward or Mm -hmm. the networking advice they gave me, or here's the little piece of advice about how to get your way out of a scene with a cool blow line. You can, you can pick all that stuff up from everybody that you meet. Yeah. Yeah. And I I also find, because everyone wants to, everyone wants to, what's the path to breaking through the business? And I always think like, it's not, there's every, there's only one, there's only door, one door. You have to go into that door. And then once you go through that door, it closes. Now you, the next person has to find their own door, but mm-hmm. you can find a common characteristic that, that everyone has that broke into the business. So it's not like they didn't go through the one path, but they all had a certain, a same trait that they have. Yeah. I mean, you know? perseverance, you know, and then like, it sounds silly, but like a lot of young writers I talk to aren't writing a lot. They have the one script that they've been polishing forever mm-hmm. or a script or an idea for a script and they want to know how to break in. And I, by the way, I was like that from like 22 to 25. I did not, I wrote one script and it was, right. I should have written 10 because yeah. I'm, and I'm, you know, 20 years into the business now, every script I wrote right now is leaps and bounds better than the last script I wrote because I'm still mm-hmm. looking. Yes. And so when you're 22 or 25, or even if you're 45 breaking in, get those bad scripts out of the way early so that when you're actually being paid to write, you've gotten the phlegm out and now you're actually getting something good on the page. Absolutely. What should we, before we sign off, is there anything we should plug? I mean, not really. I mean, you have Quantum Leap. 
Yeah, I'll be picketing at uh, Fox on Tuesday. Yes, that's how, people can, that's, how people can, that's how they can find you. You yeah. know, my wife My wife was an actor in the original Quantum Leap. She was a oh, guest. Oh, really? Yeah. This is, this is a long time. I'll look it up. That's so cool. I knew she, yeah. was, she was on Quantum Leap. They did like 100 of those. That's a really, yeah. that's a, that's a really rapid finish. No, I mean, I, I, I hope people, when the Quantum Leap will be on in the fall, and I hope people will watch it. We've got eight episodes that we made of season two before we had to shut down, and then we have five more that we'd like to make when this is all done, if this is mm -hmm. ever and, uh, and I hope people watch it. It's a really, uh, it's a great show. Yeah. Thank you again, Alex Berger. Thank you again so much. Don't go anywhere. Let me just sign off. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thank you. Another great episode. This is a, listen to this one again and again. Uh, and yeah, lots of free stuff on my website. Get onto my free newsletter, you know, all this stuff at michaeljamin.com. And that's it until next week. Until next week, uh, you know, just keep writing. Okay, everyone. Thanks again. This has been an episode of Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jamin and Phil Hudson. If you're interested in learning more about writing, make sure you register for Michael's monthly webinar at michaeljammin.com webinar. If you found this podcast helpful, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. For free screenwriting tips, follow Michael Jammin on social media at Michael Jammin Writer. You can follow Phil Hudson on social media at Phil A. Hudson. This podcast was produced by Phil Hudson. It was edited by Dallas Crane. Music by Ken Joseph. Until next time. Keep writing.